first of all, let me comment about statistics. Uh, although I played that game for many years, I have to say that statistics can only tell you whether or not something probably happened. It doesn't tell you what happened. It doesn't tell you why it happened. It doesn't tell you how it happened. So all I can tell you on the basis of statistics is something probably happened. So don't people get very hung up on statistics, particularly in the scientific world. But um, I am a little bit uh, cynical about that. But as for the Pear Lab, we um, it started it in 1979. It ran for 28 years. Uh, Bob John, who was a professor of aerospace science and dean of the School of Engineering at Princeton, had become in, interested in the topic through supervising an undergraduate project. Mm -hmm. This undergraduate had uh, read about Helmut Schmidt's uh, work with random event generators, thought it would be neat to, um, excuse me, uh, having been outside, I'm, <laughs> I'm flying. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, uh, although he didn't have, you know, much interest in the topic at the time, he did feel that uh, the design and construction of an electronic random event generator was a legitimate undergraduate project. Uh, and she was having difficulty getting any of her faculty to supervise it. And uh, she went to the dean and he said that he would. And to make a long and very complicated story short, they got some very interesting results as a result of which he felt that there was something here that engineers needed to look at. Uh, because it might be possible that various kinds of engineering systems that embodied random processes could be vulnerable to the consciousness of their human operators. You've got an adorable cat back. Is that a real cat or a statue? No, it's, it's, a, it's a little um, stone fox Oh, who's, who's been there. Looking at I've also got my two little dogs that passed away earlier uh, this month. I've got their memorial there, so... I've, I'm being watched by a lot of little animals. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm an animal lover. I have one Absolutely. cat. Uh, oh, I don't have a fox, but I have seen them in the area occasionally. Yeah. Anyway, uh, distraction. <laughs> so um, he, uh, because of his aerospace career, um, he was in touch with Mr. James McDonnell, who was the patriarch of the McDonnell Douglas Aircraft right. Company and who was also a Princeton graduate. And uh, he met Mr. Mack at a meeting and told him about what he had been doing with a student. And Mr. Mack said he thought this was something important because there are um, reports of these gremlins or anomalous phenomena in aircraft, particularly under high stress situations and that he thought it needed to be studied seriously. It needed to be studied at Princeton. Bob needed to do the program, and if Bob did it, he would fund it. So that's how the program kind of got off. Um, it took him quite a while to get the university to approve the program, but because he was a dean and because he had tenure, um, and was a highly respected scientist, they finally grudgingly agreed, figuring he'd find out that there was nothing to it and give it up and get back to work. Um, in the meantime, he, because of his teaching and his research and his deaning, uh, he needed to find somebody who could uh, up manage the laboratory on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, he had gone to a meeting of the Parapsychological Association and I was there reporting on some work I had done in remote viewing. And we, uh, during one of the coffee breaks, we had a monumental uh, conversation in which um, somebody told me that he was looking for me. So I approached him out in the lobby and I said, I understand you've been looking for me. And he said, you might say that. Uh, in the years gone by, especially since he's passed on, I've come to remember that moment 
as having really cosmic implications. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, it took him, oh, the better part of a year to get the university to approve my appointment because they couldn't figure out why a psychologist would be capable of running an, an engineering program. But we finally got that one through. And in June of 79, we started the program. So that's the short form of the history. Um, I had been living in the Chicago area at that time um, and was finishing up my graduate studies at the University of Chicago. Uh, anyway, um, the program had really three main portions. One of them was uh, a continuation of the work he had done with the student, namely building a more reliable random event generator uh, and carrying out some very carefully controlled experiments to see if the random output of these electronic devices could be influenced by human intention. Uh, the other part of the program was a follow-on on the work I had been doing in remote viewing. And in that context, we were not so much trying to prove that it worked, but trying to develop a more um, reliable analytical technique for measuring the amount of information acquired in the process. And the third part of the program, because we were seeing some very striking results in both of the first two, was really trying to come up with some kind of a uh, explanation or understanding of what was going on. It was very clear uh, early on that what we were doing was more than just an engineering program and that we were <clears throat> seeing something uh, much more profound, namely how consciousness operated and how it interfaced or interacted with its physical environment. So off we went. Uh, for 28 years, we generated huge databases in uh, the human-machine interactions and in the remote perception. The results were extraordinarily significant statistically, indicating that something was probably happening. <laughs> and then uh, we went on trying to figure out what in the world was happening. Um, a lot of the... the Re, uh, the, the research results and some of our theoretical models that we were exploring can be downloaded from our uh, um, internet uh, uh, website. <clears throat> so I'm not going to go into the details on that. I will just refer you to those. We also have a couple of books, uh, two books, one of them called Margins of Reality, The Role of Consciousness in the Physical World which was originally published in 1987 uh, and has been reissued now by our ICRL Press. The second book is called Consciousness and the Source of Reality, The Pair Odyssey. Mm -hmm. uh, because it was very difficult to get uh, mainstream publishers uh, to publish books on these topics, as you might imagine, um, we, well, let me skip ahead. When we were ready to close the laboratory and we felt we had pretty much done all we could do under the conditions that were permitted according to the university's rules and regulations, yeah. we started uh, a small uh, consortium uh, and, and which became a nonprofit uh, organization called International Consciousness Research Laboratories. And one of the things that ICRL does is we have a, a, a publication imprint called the ICRL Press. And so we have published our own books along with, oh, probably about 15, 14 or 15 books by other people that address the interfaces among science, spirituality, and consciousness. Mm -hmm. So, uh, okay. Where do I go? Well, ask me a question. <laughs> sure. So, um, so you mentioned that the uh, the Pear Labs shut down. It was quite recently, wasn't it? Comparatively. No, it was, was back it in nineteen two thousand seven. Right. Of course, so that it was, was quite a while ago. Years ago. 
See, I had it in my mind it was 2017, so it's 2007. No. <laughs> so what what was the um, trigger that caused that to, to, to stop? Because I imagine a lot of the sceptics will say, well, it's because you didn't find any results or it was no. found to be nonsense. <laughs> Uh, there are rumors that the university shut us down, but that's not the case. If they could have, they would have years before. Uh, we closed the lab because, as I said, number one, um, we had done all we could uh, in that environment. It was getting to get a bit tedious, just doing more of the same. The results were there. It, it, there was no sense in replicating and replicating and replicating. Hmm. Number two... Uh, Bob had uh, reached retirement age, and uh, if he retired from his faculty position, uh, we would have to get somebody with credentials yeah. uh, to run the program, and there was nobody who was willing or capable of doing so. Uh, and the third reason really was um, we wanted to get on with other things. We had other questions we wanted to ask. And um, Pear had done what Pear had to do. And it was time to let it go, send its spirit out into the world and let it do whatever it was it was supposed to be doing. Sure. So, um, yes, we did run into a lot of skepticism and criticism. But our philosophy there had been, if somebody had familiarized themselves with the experiments and the results and raised a question that was a legitimate scientific question based on the data, we always answered it. Mm -hmm. If people dismissed what we did uh, because they thought it, it was inherently wrong just because, or because they thought we were crazy, uh, we didn't answer those. No. Uh, that, was, that was a waste of our time. We felt it wasn't our job to convince people uh, we were doing what we did because we wanted to learn something. Yes. And uh, that was really it. Um, but no, the, the university did not shut us down, although I have to say they were very happy when we left. <laughs> why, why do you think that was that they always had this animosity? Did they have this kind of the sceptical outlook that it must already be impossible what you're looking at? Um. The psychology of the skeptic is, to me, is far more anomalous than the data we were studying. The closest I can come is to tell you a story early on before we had a name for the lab because it was situated in a uh, unused storage area in the basement next hmm. to the machine shop. And there was no number on the door and, you know, right. we had to identify it in some way and I very cleverly thought if I put a, a Greek letter psi on the mm -hmm. door, which had, uh, you know, three uh, nuances, obviously, parapsychology, uh, physical wave function, and uh, the, uh, well, whatever it was, there was our Greek psi on the door. And by the time the third person came by, with a terrified look on their face, it was usually a him, uh, and asked me why we had a devil's pitchfork on our door. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, I figured that uh, there was a problem, but it wasn't ours. Mm. And I would say, why are you seeing a devil's pitchfork? It's a Greek letter. You see it in your wave equations every day. But finally, uh, I said, okay, this is obviously intimidating people. So I took the sigh down and I put up a cute little poster. You've probably seen them with a spiral galaxy and an arrow that says, you are yes. here. Yeah. And one day as I came into work, I found someone staring at this door. And he said, you know, that's not our galaxy. And I went, oh my God. <laughs> I said, thank you for telling me. I'd hate to have a misleading sign on the door. And I tore the sign down and uh, walked inside and said, you know, these people are nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's such a resistance. Mm. Uh, that, And it's coming from somewhere deep inside. Why a devil's pitchfork? What does that? Yeah, I yes, indeed. indeed. I was a psychologist by training. Uh, <laughs> I'm into symbols. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, 
somewhere around that time, Bob and I had gone out to lunch and we were saying, you know, it's time we came up for a name for the place. And Bob said, I was thinking about Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research. What do you think? And I said, P-E-A pair? Nah, doesn't do it for me. Okay. He, they brought our lunch. Bob said, pass the salt. I picked up the, this pewter salt shaker that was in the shape of a pear. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, handed it to him and said, no, no. Uh, shortly afterward, the waitress came by and said, can I interest you people in some nice dessert? We have some freshly baked pear cake. <laughs> now, that was the only time in my life I ever heard of pear cake on the menu. The I must admit, I've never heard that before. And at that point, I said to Bob, okay, I can't fight this because if <laughs> I say no, when I walk out, I'll get hit in the head with a pear. With a pear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the laboratory became the pear lab. We replaced the devil's pitchfork and the misleading cosmic sign, uh, the uh, galaxy map, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, with a pear. And nobody could find anything to complain about with the pear. And there it was. And that's how we became the pear lab. It's almost surprising they didn't say that, well, have you got a misshapen apple on your, on your door? No, it's a good thing we didn't have an apple because then they would say, you know, it was the devil tempting us. And, yeah, and yeah, there were people yeah. who said that we were doing the devil's work. They said that the only time these things can be taken seriously when they are produced in the name of Jesus Christ. Right. And I would say, well, that's okay because every time we get a positive result, I go, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um Anyway, uh, that will probably give you some inkling of the fact sure. that in addition to doing some really very um, rigorous research, we also had fun. Yeah, And we did it absolutely. with a sense of humor. Good. That's the and way to do I, it. I think the humor is a very important part of the phenomenon. Um, this is... Uh, one cannot get stuck in a particular worldview or belief system. One has to just be open to whatever happens. And if you get offered pear cake for dessert, okay, <laughs> so be it. And yes. of course, those kinds of uh, synchronicities happened an awful lot mm. above and beyond the, uh, the actual uh, investigations. Sure. But we had probably one of the largest databases ever with different types of random physical processes with different uh, algorithms to analyze remote perception results and um, it was there was really no question that something was legitimate there it was also clear that from talking to the people who did the experiments and they were all volunteers none of them claimed to be psychic or have special abilities but they would very frequently say that uh you know beyond the uh need to have an intention to go high or low or left mm -hmm. or right whatever it was i have to develop a relationship with the device right um i have to have an emotional to be, yeah, bond. emotionally attached to it yeah, yeah an emotional bond um and frequently they would describe it as similar to the kind a musician might have with his or her instrument or mm -hmm. person might have with their car or with their computer. But the device becomes an extension of yourself. Um, and that, I think, was very important. The other thing that uh, struck us as very important was we were looking at different physical theories, none of which could account uh, for what we were seeing, particularly since the effects we saw were uh, uh, independent of distance or time. Mm -hmm. Can't explain that by any known right. physical. So it didn't matter where the experimenter was geographically, the exactly. effect was the same. Up to and thousands strong. of miles away or many days before right. or after the right. device was run. Um, so we started looking at uh, another funny story Bob 
uh, taught a graduate level course in quantum mechanics. I had no knowledge of quantum mechanics. I'd never taken a physics course in my life. And uh, he said, don't worry about the equations and the math. Just get the general gist concepts. of yeah. concepts. And uh, after a week or two, one day, one of the students in the class said to me, uh, aren't you a psychologist? And I said, yes. And he said, well, why are you taking a course in quantum mechanics? And I said, quantum mechanics? I thought this was the psychology of subatomic particles. <laughs> uh, as you can see, I, I was and still am a bit of a wise ass. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you need to be, especially with the sort of people you deal with. <laughs> yeah. But um, what happened was Bob and I started looking at the concepts of quantum mechanics and looking at the philosophical writings of the people who had developed quantum mechanics, Bohr, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, you know, Planck, Planck all those yeah. guys. And we found that all of them in their personal and philosophical writings believed that what was going on had to do with consciousness. Of course, nobody read those works because they were only interested in the equations. Right. And I got these books out of the library. They hadn't been taken out in decades. But um, we wrote a paper, which now became a book, uh, called The Quirks of the Quantum Mind. And the, uh, the basic uh, thesis is that quantum mechanics, or indeed um, any model of reality, is not uh, reality. It is a description of reality. Right. Yeah. It is a, an attempt to describe our experiences of our subjective uh, world. Experience, yeah. yeah. And as such, these models can tell us as much about our consciousness as they can about what our consciousness is trying to describe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the most profound uh, among many uh, concept in that was Bohr's concept of complementarity. I don't know that one. Complementarity, it takes you away from the dualistic world of either or. Right. And it says that things are not either or, they are complementary. That is, they are just right. two ways of looking at the same, the same thing. thing. I see. And if you look at a um, uh, an event and wanting to find out its um, particulate characteristics, you will look for its position and momentum. On the other hand, if you want to find out its wave-like qualities, you will look for its uh, frequency and amplitude. Yeah. Yeah. And depending on what you look for determines what you want. Right, I see. Because yeah. both views are correct. And I think that is a powerful uh, understanding of everything. I mean, mm. it's the concept of yin and yang. Uh, the Tao is not either yin or yang. It is the interface of yin and yang. It is the, so, yeah. the face so of it's... the feminine and the masculine, the creative and the destructive, uh, the positive and the negative, yada, yada. So when making these measurements, it seems that what you're intending to find manifests into what you actually find. Exactly. And I know quantum mechanics is one that's often um, used as a kind of a, almost an attack against anybody that, that takes the Copenhagen, is it the Copenhagen interpretation that yeah. consciousness collapses the wave function? They use that as kind of um, calling someone a pseudoscientist and misunderstanding what quantum mechanics is saying or making it fit. I, I, I get you, you don't get that impression. they don't understand quantum mechanics. And if they had listened to what the quantum mechanics patriarchs were saying, they'd understand a little bit better, but they, their minds were made up, the equations worked, and that was all she wrote. Right. Um, so during your, um, you mentioned that there were several experiments which were very statistically significant or, you know, very significant indeed. Um, could, could you name some of the, could you give some examples of some of the experiments that you think were the most telling of a phenomenon? Well, probably the ones that had the largest databases because uh, the effects that we saw were individually very tiny. But 
collectively over many, many repetitions, they turned out to be statistically unlikely. Um, as an example, if you flip a coin, uh, you have a 50-50 chance of getting a head or a tail. If you flip the coin 10 times and you get six heads, you're not going to be terribly impressed. No. If you flip the coin 100,000 times and you get 60,000 heads, something's going on. It's still that tiny little effect, but it compounds over repetitions. Yes. I, I can imagine um, the, the most common criticism with that would be you know, if chance was 50%, and you were getting fifty-five percent. They would say, you know, well, that's regardless of how how many trials has done, that's still a tiny effect, so it can be ignored. That's right. And the effect of the Higgs boson is even smaller. And yet, that's accepted. Yes, yeah, that's accepted. Uh, the other thing, and going back to complementarity, uh, one of the examples that is given is the wave and the particle, of course, and. Um, this is very important because you can also talk about complementarity of the objective, the descriptive, analytical uh, aspect of our consciousness, and the subjective, the experiential or intuitive uh, or direct uh, connection with the experience. Those are two legitimate views of the experience. Um, but the description isn't the only view. And the problem with our modern science, it's only hung up on description. Uh, right. Intuition and subjectivity are, they're no-nos. Seen as illusions, aren't they? And that, that's yeah. very sad. And that starts, it's part of our educational system. Uh, it starts out, when you're a little kid, you already know that kids are magical. Until you tell them, oh, don't worry about that. That's just a dream. Oh, that's only make-believe. That Your imaginary friend isn't real. I yeah. beg your pardon? Yeah. <laughs> your imaginary indeed. friend may be more real than your father. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but then we send them to school, and they learn how to count and how to compare and how to compete. Yes. Uh, yeah. And we don't teach them how to dream or how to imagine um, and yeah. they kind of lose that gradually. By the time they get to college and they're taking physics, they're told this is how it is. And they don't know that they can question that or there are other ways of describing the, the real world. You know, but when you see clear evidence that consciousness can acquire or generate information from thousands of miles or several days away, it is very clear that this is not emanating from the brain. The brain is organizing the information, but it is not generating it. Mm -hmm. um, well, what do you think to the theory that I generally hold to, um, mainly more metaphorically, that the, the brain acts as a kind of a filter for some um, as of yet ununderstood, un un I suppose? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think it was Aldous Huxley that talked of it as a reducing valve. Yes, that's right. Filters out whatever it does not perceive to be necessary for the immediate needs of the body. Yeah. And dismisses it. But that yes. doesn't mean the rest of it isn't out there and accessible to us. Hmm. I think most people struggle with that because... I think most people struggle with that idea because there's no mechanism for it. And, you know, we need to have mechanisms to understand things. Although... Um, you know, a lot of evidence is given to support the idea that the brain creates consciousness, which is reasonable. But I always argue that well, it's also just as reasonable to use that evidence in support of a filter theory, because it works the same way. Yep. Um, and I've never found any evidence for brain creating that doesn't also work for brain filtering. Exactly. But be because we don't have that mechanism, it's not accepted, which is understandable in the way we we brought up. But if up you want talk. a mechanism, um, well, we're looking at it. Uh, we, we have a radio, uh, somewhere in this environment are this vast array of frequencies and amplitudes. But if I have a device that can tune into a specific frequency and amplitude, I can get a particular program. Mm -hmm. The program is not inside the radio. 
or the computer. Are you inside my computer? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Am I inside yours? No. We're just picking up some kind of frequencies and amplitudes and signals that we can then process, you know? Yes. Yeah. We're not generating them. No. And that's what we don't understand. But it's what people like you or Huxley or many others have talked about and said, all we are are information processors. We are not information generators. Yeah, indeed. So what do you think to the arguments of, of folks like Sean Carroll um, who say, I mean, this is mainly on my main area of research, which is life after death, possibilities around that. Um, but he says, you know, life after death is, is impossible, but it touches on your sort of thing as well, or incredibly improbable because there are no um, identified physical correlates to anything being received and you would expect to see some kind of you know measurable physical activity from that interaction of the non-local mind consciousness with the brain does he know of any physical correlates of love does that well, mean we, love we, isn't real hmm. i mean we, we know we know chemical correlates of love um come on <laughs> to, to some degree we can say that when when we see this this chemical in a certain um amount we know that that people report um experiencing the feeling of love or pleasure with that chemical of course that's correlation correlateral yeah, correlation ain't causality no and you know we could look at a beautiful sunset or listen to a beautiful symphony yes you can analyze the notes in that symphony and each of the pieces you know the uh, instruments but that's not the same as sitting back and listening to the symphony and letting it move you emotionally. Mm. The chemical is the chemical a reaction to the emotion or the cause of the emotion. Mm. I, I think would also, the reaction. Yeah, I mean, another interpretation from um, Dr. Bernardo Castro, which I like, is that, you know, um, the chemical correlations are possibly the image of what that experience looks like in the physical sense. The yep. same way, the same way that um, what does he say that combustion, the process of combustion has a physical representation as fire. So too does the f experience of love have that physical right. appearance, which is an idealist position. You know, uh, for all of the um, uh, table of uh, elements and all that, there are four elements we still do not understand: earth air, fire, and water. Mm. Those are the only ones that matter. And the reason we don't understand them is we keep insisting on looking at their physical properties instead of recognizing that they also have spiritual properties and that they interact with each other and with everything and affect everything around them. You know. Right. Yes, yeah, we, we always try to break things down reduce them into their constituent parts and look understand them that way without taking the whole and the effects of them into context so i'm curious about your previous research into um remote viewing because that's a phenomenon again that's often discarded as luck or um you know get count the hits miss forget the misses kind of thing not bloody likely <laughs> so uh, what was your how what was your research into that can you tell us a bit about that well Curiously, um, because I had left school to have a family, I returned to finish my college education when I was a little bit older than most students. And I really didn't know what I wanted to major in. And I ended up with a double major in um, a human uh, humanities and in psychology. And it was very curious. I, for each of those, I had to do a senior project. For my senior project in humanities, I did a research paper on altered states of consciousness. For my project in psychology, my advisor uh, had brought to my attention a work that had been recently published by Hal Putoff and Russell Targ mm -hmm. at SRI describing their remote viewing work. Yes. And... Um, I read the paper and I thought, oh, come on, <laughs> this is this is far out. And then uh, there was one thing in the paper that really bugged me. And that was they said that sometimes the percipient could describe the target scene 
even before it was selected. Right, yes, I remember that, yeah. And that troubled me a great deal. And then I decided, well, I'm going to try it for myself. And it was a very famous Sunday afternoon. I was doing laundry. And as I was folding my towels, I said, you know, I am going to try to see if I can imagine where my friend is going to be at 530 this evening. And then I'll call her tonight and see where she was. Mm-hmm. Well, at the, before I could even think about it much, I immediately had this flash or sense of her walking in the woods. Just spontaneously. Something that she typically did. Right. You know, her outdoor activities were tennis or bike riding. She was not a woods walker. Mm-hmm. <coughs> About a quarter after five, my doorbell rang. My friend is standing there and she said, I'm going stir crazy and I needed to get out of the house. I thought it might be nice to go take a walk in the woods. Would woods. you like to come? <laughs> So after I sort of picked my jaw up from the floor yeah, yeah. <laughs> and took a walk in the woods with her, um, I decided that I have to see this for myself. Mm. So I decided as my senior project, I would attempt to do a modest replication. I think I did eight yeah. trials. Uh, trying and to just, just uh, And I got some remarkable results. A couple of scenes that were almost photographic in their similarities not, not all of them some were mm-hmm. sort of uh but not totally and that was really what got me interested uh with bob in trying to find a better way to quantify the information other than saying wow that's a good that's a good match yeah but that, yes. that doesn't do it for me so ha- ha- what what um makes you believe against kind of this just being coincidental on on occasion because it happens too often too often yeah and it's too some of the uh, results are just too striking yeah there's a this examples of them um in our books and um i think there's an, a paper on our website but i mean they were remarkable mm. i mean i could have been standing there one of one of my favorite ones um, I'm looking at your little fox. <laughs> um, uh, I was the uh, recipient. A friend of mine or a colleague was the agent. And he was out. He was in Texas. I didn't know where he was. I just knew he was out of town. And um, I described a scene of him lying on the floor, playing, giggling and playing with a bunch of puppies. Well, that was a complete miss. It turned out that he was at a NASA um, aerospace center. But he said, you know, that that evening I visited a friend of mine whose dog had just had a litter of puppies puppies. and I was lying there playing with them and having a wonderful time. And I thought, now that is interesting because that's not a typical... That brings time into the mix. The emotional investment... And probably the fact that I love animals. <laughs> uh, I picked up on that, but I never got the, the aerospace uh, scene. No. But there were others that were right on at the time and the place, and they just could not have been pure guessing. No, uh, no. Again, it's the depth. You can say coincidence, but it's the depth of the coincidence that has to be taken into account, all the synchronicities that make it up, that make it far too unlikely. I mean... I'll give you an example that I had recently, which I'm I my logical mind tells me it's coincidental, but I'm not entirely sure. I lost both my dogs um, on the same day, early January this year. And oh, I'm so sorry. It was, it was difficult, but you know, after the shock, <laughs> it's losing two oh. at once is not nice. But ne- never mind. Um, on the twentieth of that month, I was watching the Netflix series Surviving Death. I don't know if you know it, and there was a part on there about after death communication and one example was um a lady who was sent a red cardinal an incredibly tame red cardinal and it, it was a whole, a whole thing about but briefly that made me think well um my favorite animals is the fox so maybe if i ask ty and Omi, my two dogs to send me a tame fox the same way that cardinal was tame that would be fascinating uh, i've never i've lived in the same area in the same house for 23 years i've never seen a fox i've never really gone out at night but i've never seen a fox um, three days or so after that, 
on the 20th, we went out and a fox ran across the road. It wasn't tame, but it was a fox and it ran across the road. And I thought that's unusual. Three days following that, three or four days following that, we were out walking again and a second goes running across the road in front of us. I thought, okay, this is getting a bit strange now. And then another three or four days after that, Dad was with us, and I thought, uh, every time Dad comes walking with us, nothing ever happens, nothing ever interesting ever happens. So if you can send me a fox now, that would be fascinating. And about five minutes after I thought that, bang, there goes a third across the road, much closer. And I thought, you know, fair play, I'd never really gone out at night before since losing the dogs. Mm. So maybe they, there were these foxes around, but I'd never seen them. But three in two weeks... Yeah, <laughs> it goes beyond coincidental for me. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, uh, you know when uh, when Bob died, Bob uh, was very fond of birds, and he used to sit at his dining room table looking out at an array of bird feeders right. as he had his yeah. meals. And uh, at his funeral, we uh, the. Uh, while the funeral was going on, there was a woodpecker mm-hmm. going rat-a-tat-tat, rat-a-tat, almost throughout the whole thing. Um, you know, it happens. It was outside. There were woods nearby. Yeah. But then uh, after that, for about <clears throat> three or four weeks, uh, every morning, at about the time when Bob would call me to say good morning, I would hear this woodpecker out in my yard. Every morning Every it was morning. there. And it wasn't uh, before that? No. Before his death? And then finally, you know, it hit me. And I said, hey, Bob, is that you? <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> and, you know, after I recognized that it was him, I didn't see the wood. I mean, I've seen it occasionally. I've never heard it like that every morning no. at the same time. No. And it's curious, you know, since, since the third fox, I haven't seen any since. And we've been out walking every night. So maybe once you acknowledge that your belief is there that it is them they feel they don't need to send things anymore exactly. so for those that are interested in, in all those that follow my research for the subject of life after death what do you think all your research with pair and anomalous experience and, and consciousness being involved what do you think that means for the mind brain connection and uh, post-mortem survival well it tells us that our consciousness is not our brain it also tells us that our consciousness can access vast ranges of space and time and that probably space and time itself are not properties of the universe but properties of our organizing brains i think it was albert einstein who once said space and time are just useful uh, strategies for keeping everything from happening at once Hmm. (coughs) what wasn't it shown though didn't einstein show that space and time are kind of physical things because they can bend or they can I'm sure yeah. I've seen that somewhere, but but he also said they were concepts, right? And um, what was I going to say? the 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 fact that we can access different as parts of the universe, distantly and spatially and temporally, the fact that we can connect with each other, whether as birds. <laughs> or uh, telepathically, or just knowing when somebody's mm-hmm. going to call and the phone rings. Yeah. You know, or even the, apparitions in some cases. Apparitions. There are so many. All of the phenomena that challenge science are telling us something about reality. And <clears throat> I believe that when... Um, well... Let me just let me just step back. My definition of consciousness, with a small or a capital C, is that it's the organizing principle of the universe. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, going back to the yin yang thing I mentioned, you've got yin, which is what William James called the Aboriginal sensible muchness, pure mm-hmm. potentiality. Um, the yang is the organizing principle mm-hmm. that reaches into that potentiality and extracts what it needs uh, therefrom. I see. So it puts it into form somewhat. And then describes it. But the right. description is not the experience. And 
I believe that when, uh, and it's not just a question of believing, I know that when I get to the point where I have outgrown this physical body, um, I will leave it. I will thank it for its service, just like I have thanked my old car that's 27 years old. And uh, it's getting there. <laughs> um, but I love it. And it has served me well. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to be attached to it. The self that is Brenda, the, mm. the ego self that has, you know, the, the flesh and the, the organizing and the, the vision and all that is going to go. But the self with the capital S that is the I will continue. Do you and think that will include, sorry, do you think that will include your mind, your memories and everything with it? It depends on if I want to access my mind and memories. Right. Okay. So because you don't think... Not, because they're not in my brain. They're out right. there. Okay. So if I can access what's out there while I'm in a body, I can access it even easier when sure. I'm not in a it makes body. It makes sense. Hmm. Um, I do feel, I feel that strongly. You know, we recently published a book by a friend of mine called World Shift Happens. Um, the book, not your friend, I suppose. Huh? I suppose that's the name of the book, not the name of your friend. No, no, that's the name of the book. <laughs> and uh, it's a, it's really a very nice book. Um, but there's a, it has three parts. And the middle part is a fascinating conversation among a group of departed uh, philosophers and thinkers and, you know, geniuses. Yeah. Talking about... Uh, the other side and what it's really like and how you get there and how you get out of there and what goes on and the level it was I recommend it um, I might be able to even find that section to send you that'd be perfect if you could but it was so right on mm. it was like yes you know I'm reading this and I'm going that's exactly right and intuitively I knew that it was true I have no evidence Brenda has no evidence anyway um, except for, you know, an occasional, <laughs> an occasional woodpecker, uh, or, or other signs like that. Um, but, um, you know, after a lifetime of a col collecting these experiences and a half of a lifetime playing the science game, I will put my money on my subjective experiences rather than the science the science is simply a method to try to persuade yourself that you know something yes. or to persuade someone else that you know something. Yes. And it doesn't really deal with the important things. For example, excuse me again, another book that we published that I recommend very highly. Uh, we didn't, I didn't write it. Uh, a couple of friends in uh, Italy wrote it. It's called mm -hmm. Syntropy the spirit of love and it proposes that there are two complementary there we go again uh, forces in nature one of them is the force of entropy entropy comes from the past to the future it breaks things down it creates more and more it, uh, uh, reduces you know uh, yeah, yeah. until ultimately all you've got is a bunch of chaos Syntropy comes from the future, comes backward in time, and it comes from an event that is going to happen, and it becomes like an, att an attractor, they call it, that draws to it that which it needs to manifest. All those experiences, synchronicities or coincidences, but the, uh, the idea is that I'm slipping down in my chair. Science cannot explain life because according to the law of entropy, life can't happen. Um, it gets more and more complex instead of more and more chaotic. So they can't explain that at all. Listen, they can hardly explain a virus, much less human life. Um, True. Yes, although with theories such as abiogenesis and, and things like that, they do um, describe that 
it seems that life can arise from non-life and things like that so that's generally the main theory i don't know enough about yeah, the um origin of life and and um i suppose cosmic science to to know anything about entropy or anything like that so i'll, I'll have to take your word on that one but well they don't understand it either they don't know anything about it either they're just faking it <laughs> fair enough really cool. they they know a little bit and they presume you know many years ago um as bob was explaining quantum mechanics to me he asked he said do you uh know about covalent bonds and i said no what's a covalent bond and he then described it in the language that most physicists say well let me give you a trivial yeah always a trivial example now, let's say you have two hydrogen atoms and each of them has a nucleus and an electron. And if they get close enough together and if their electrons are spinning in opposite directions, they will come together and merge and become a molecule, which has two electrons that are just spinning around. And uh, that was a metaphor, of course, and it was beautiful. And I, at that point, I said to him, you know, uh, that that's really amazing. I said, you know, uh, tell me about more complicated things. What about uh, what about uranium that has lots and lots of? Oh no, they can't do that. I said, well, why not? Well, it's a three-body problem. I said, what do you mean by a three-body problem? Well, as soon as you're talking about more than two uh, events, you can't describe it mathematically said i uh, are you telling me that all you physicists really know is hydrogen and that everything else you think you know is just an extrapolation from hydrogen and he said yeah pretty much so and that, that blew me away and i said to him you know bob i said you physicists have the answers but you have no idea what the question is i know what the question is that was a very early conversation that we had. Years later, I asked a physicist friend of mine, uh, uh, can you explain the difference to me between trivial and non-trivial? And he said, sure. Uh, trivial means in principle it can be solved. Non-trivial means it's impossible. I said, oh, 